In a world where we are 3D printing human organs, getting ready to colonize Mars and have existing prototypes of flying vehicles, well, it's pretty safe to say we've come a long way since T-Rexes and Velociraptors walked the Earth. Or have we? You see, when my mum revealed to me that she was in love with another woman, I was over the moon for her that she found love and happiness again. But I realized that the world does not greet a difference to the norm with similar open arms. I was shocked to discover that there are still, today, 10 countries that consider being gay a punishable offense by death. We may be light years ahead with technology, but today's generation is still facing archaic judgment, punishment, ridicule, and abuse when it comes to being different for their sexual preferences. Our sexuality and gender is assumed through birth, and any challenge to that is shamed. In the 21st century, we are still seeing so much hate spewed for being different that the LGBTQ community are bullied and cyberbullied more than double their heterosexual peers. And as a result, a staggering 41% of transgender people have heartbreakingly attempted suicide. So how do we stop this? How do we as a society stop judging each other for any differences we may have? Stop dismissing people who are not the same. Stop spilling negativity on others who don't share the same beliefs. Well, I am hoping that with this show, we are able to see that in the end, no matter how different we may be from each other, the fundamental yet simple truth is, we are all just human. I know it's simple, but really just think about it. We all look to be wanted and accepted. So why can't we all give others the gift we want for ourselves? So today I want to do a different kind of show. I wanted to bring on incredible women who have experienced firsthand what it takes to discover and own their true sexual identity. Women who have had to endure in order to exist, to then finally be able to empower. So first up, I'd like to introduce to you the inspiring Mathis Razi. Now, Mathis and I literally only met last week but I was so captivated and inspired by her story that I just had to have her on the show. Born in Iran into a traditional household and living by an Islamic dress code, she attended an all-girls high school. Sex education was at a zero and there was no access whatsoever to the internet. So when she received her first period, she thought she was about to go and sleep with the fishes. <laughs> Her understanding of her body and sexuality didn't see the light of day until adulthood while on a trip to India. And although she didn't quite eat, pray and love, she did finally embrace, party and learn. She embraced her curiosity, parted for the first time and learned what it meant to be free of family, cultural and social pressures. So finally realizing her truth, she took off her hijab, cut her hair and has since come out as a queer woman. Now, guys, her story isn't about race, and this isn't about judging another cultural belief. It's about recognizing that this woman was brave enough to look at her situation, judge that it wasn't right for her, and despite any backlash or consequences, she kept pushing in order for her to live her authentic life. And let's face it, isn't that what we are all striving for? I'd also like to introduce to you the resilient Nia Clark. Living in over 15 different foster homes, Nia had nothing but a trash bag of belongings to her name. Now, for any child, that would have been a tough existence. But as a transgender black woman, well, living on Elm Street would have been more like a dream compared to the homes she lived in. 
When she told her first foster mother she was really a girl, she responded by placing her in a mental institute for over six months and was only released on the condition that she stopped repeating it. But not letting that stop her from searching for her authentic self and owning it, she found herself calling her birth mother one day and telling her her truth. Her response? You are mentally ill, you belong in foster care, I'm glad you don't live with me, you're going to die of AIDS. And then she hung up. But through adversity, she became an expert in survival. And that, guys, that became her superpower. From serving as a consulting producer on the Emmy-nominated MTV documentary Transformation to working at the Los Angeles LGBT Center with Elton John AIDS Foundation, her impact is certainly making the earth shiver. Now a Herb Hampshire Point Scholar, Child Welfare Consultant, Direct Care Counselor, Trainer and LGBTQ Youth Advocate, she is using her personal narrative to change the system from within, making it her mission to ensure that no more LGBTQ children are abused by the very people responsible for their care. So guys, welcome to a very special edition of Women of Impact. Yeah. Welcome, ladies, to the show. Thank you. thank you. And thank you for that introduction. Ooh, that was yeah. amazing. <laughs> that was um, great. So this isn't really a world that I know much of, but I feel so incredibly inspired by people like yourselves who are willing to own who they are, face adversity, push through, and be authentic to yourselves. And like that is so touching. Um, and I, I think that there's so many lessons to be learned for anyone listening, whether it's they're struggling with the same things that you guys did or just other struggles that have been put on them um, through their childhood. So I want to go back to the first memories you guys both had of where you felt like what was the expectation put on you? And then when did you realize that actually that didn't feel authentically you? For me, I always felt something was different as long, you know, my first memories were of um, being encouraged to like very masculine things, liking masculine toys. Um, if I fell, I would hear from my birth mother, come on, get up, you're, you know, you're a big boy. Come on, you can do this, you can take this pain. Um, it was around uh, maybe five years old, I was, um, playing in my mother's room and I saw um, on her dresser, she loved to do her nails, beautiful nails. And she had this really like, this, the reddest red polish you could ever find. Um, and I decided to try putting it on, but I was just so inept and clumsy that not only did I smear it all over my fingers, but I spilled the bottle on her comforter in her bedroom. And I remember her lecturing me, um, not so much on spilling the bottle, but the fact that I had put on nail polish you know, don't you know that you're a boy? Boys don't do this. This is wrong. You, you know, never do this again. So those were the first messages I really got. And what were you thinking in those moments? Were you like, oh, okay. Or were you like, but that doesn't feel right. I think what I thought was um, mother knows best. Mm. Um, you know, at the time I was also being physically abused by my mom. Um, and it just, Talk it, like it really came from an intergenerational, like a generational history of abuse mm -hmm. that just got passed down and passed down and passed down. So being abused by her, I, I was taught that you don't speak, that you don't um, say what's really going on for you, that you keep it to yourself, 
no matter how dangerous it is, no matter how um, distressing it is. When a trans youth is insistent, consistent, and persistent, this is a legitimate identity for them. They are experiencing maybe gender dysphoria or having feelings that, uh, that contrast with their uh, sex assigned at birth. And that was happening for me. Mm -hmm. I felt this contrast. And that's all you can focus on um, is how much people don't accept you. And it makes you socially anxious. It makes you avoidant of people and situations. Um, it makes you presume that no one um, is on your side and everyone has some sort of comment that's disparaging or transphobic or misogynist. Um, and so all of those things kind of came out for me as a young person. And all of that that I'm talking about is really what, you know, transphobia is all about. Mm. And it stems from gender policing. It really stems from that those early messages that we give to children where we say this is for boys this is for girls um, and we really gender everything from the moment that baby gets wrapped up in a blanket mm. that baby is gendered right is it in a pink blanket mm -hmm. or a blue blanket mm -hmm. or? and every decision that will be made about how that child is raised oftentimes is so based on gender and so you know that was my experience and when i didn't meet those expectations it exacerbated the abuse mm. Yeah, that actually brings me to a quote to what you said, Madis. Um, it's, um, remember, gender is a label created by people. Labels like gender are used to help us figure out what to expect from one another. They aren't set in stone and there is no right or wrong gender to have or express. Um, so talk to me about that, um, about what you found um, the stereotype was, or I guess the expectations were of you growing up in a very traditional, um, a Muslim family, but also a, um, as a, you know, as a female. Yeah, sure. So I didn't really get, have an opportunity to understand what is sexuality in, back in Iran. Uh, it was given, I was a woman and there were so many do's and don'ts. Uh, woman, as a girl, you don't speak with men, don't speak with your cousins, don't play with your male cousins. Uh, I, I was barely like nine that I had to go, uh, like start covering my body. So most of the things were just given, so I didn't really understand what is a sexuality. Mm. I was always different from the other women around me or the girls around me. I always wanted to protect my brother, which was in Middle Eastern and traditional family. It's the brother who is always taking care of the family and the sisters. Um, when I backtrack right now, I understand that even back then, I wasn't just like the girl that they wanted me to be. Mm but there were always places that I wanted to have my own role. My set so role. at what point did you start to explore? So I know that, you know, it was the age of 19 that you went to India and first, like, actually kind of let loose and started to experiment. Um, did you even think about it before that? As a child, you're told a certain thing, and when you don't feel it, you feel like either ashamed to speak up or maybe you're wrong because you're not seeing anyone else around you that is similar to you. And so if you, if you were seeing where every girl looked the same, had to wear, you know, the fully clothed um, and you didn't have Google, so you weren't looking at, you know, what the rest of the world looked like, how were you perceiving that? So I didn't really know anything. I didn't really know about Google or how girls dress up. I used to watch some uh, like Disney movies, which is again, it's all like animation and cartoons mm -hmm. or Charlie Ch Chaplin movies. So the movies which I wouldn't even be able to see the woman or how they dress up or any sort of affection towards the woman. And it wasn't, I didn't really have so much time to 
think about my own sexuality. I always had some feeling towards women that now if I can backtrack it, I remember that uh, the first time I went to a swimming pool in Tehran in Iran, uh, it's just of course all women because everything is separate in Iran. Mm. I was so hyper, super excited looking at the woman and with the bikinis and I didn't understand what it meant. I thought that this is just something everyone felt that way. Uh, or when I had, I was like the the mixer was the mas the massage was with the woman. I was all like goosebump and enjoying it. I didn't understand any of that. Now that I'm putting the dots uh, backward, I just see that it was part of me. I was never um, straight. I was never. I never wanted to have that label mm -hmm. of that I'm straight. So how do you take then those moments of confusion? and then transition into the realization and then acceptance? You know, for everyone, it's different. Yeah. We all go through our own understanding of self-acceptance. Um, that is a universal experience um, that everyone endeavors to have. Um, for me, it was really, I, I wanna say around the age of 16, and at that point, um, I had actually been in the system for a really long time, and I had been legally adopted by um, a, another social welfare mm -hmm. provider. Um, and at the time, I had really been synthesizing and, and thinking about synthesizing my identity, uh, my gender identity. And so I came out to her um, um, and told her that I, you know, that I was a girl. And she said, oh, well, I accept you. I, you know, I embrace who you are. But with one proviso, um, you can dress however you want, but it can only be in the house. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, her excuses were the neighbors will see, you'll get bullied at school. It was kind of every reason mm -hmm. but me and my self-affirmation, me and my, um, my core identity. Um, and so what I got from this was, you know, settle, make concessions, mm. because at the end of the day, it's better than trash bags. Mm. At the end of the day, it's better than figuring out what next place I'll be kicked out of for being too effeminate. Mm. Um, and so I said, yes. And I did that at first. And, you know, I would just dress at home and, and slowly but surely, it just didn't feel okay to be at school. Um, without some article of feminine clothing. And so I just, over the, a period of several months, I just incorporated more and more feminine clothing into my wardrobe. And at first my adoptive mother, you know, she, um, she seemed supportive of that. But it was around, just as I started my junior year in high school and I transferred to a different school that she um, took major issue. I had gone to the interview for the school fully dressed as the beautiful Vesuvius of a woman you see <laughs> today. Um, and I, I, you know, I went as me. I wanted to start school as me. Um, and I'd had that summer before to, tran to socially transition and I was affirming myself. So she was not pleased at all. She brought me to Suffolk County Probate Court in Boston and sat me down um, with our attorney. And the two of them sat at a table across from me and they proceeded to give me the following ultimatum. Um, she said, either you come home and live with me, you're gonna dress like a boy, you're gonna be a boy, or you go back into the system. 
And I really had to choose between safety and permanency and well-being, these you know, three tenets I talk about in training as, as an adult now, looking back. Um, and I had to choose between those things and my gender identity and being myself and being my authentic self. And that's a, that's a decision at that- At like 16, you said? At 16. How do you mm -hmm. make a decision like that at 16? Um, I chose me. At the end of the day, I knew I had me. And so I decided to go back into the system. And when I was in that courtroom, I said to myself, if I ever get the opportunity, I am going to get, I'm going to grow up and I am going to make sure that this doesn't happen to other kids like me. I'm going mm -hmm. to prove this woman wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get out of the system. I'm going to make something of myself. So had that not happened, I would not really be sitting here today. I would not be so invested in this work. If your um, adopted mother hadn't have given you an ultimatum? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. Um, so how about you? Obviously for you, uh, growing up in a religious household, um, taking off the hijab I know is a big deal mm -hmm. um, and I want to make sure that people are listening do not throw hate at you for doing that um, it is I it isn't to me in fact I'd love to hear your perspective it's not necessarily about like the a religion being right or wrong it's just does it feel authentically mm -hmm. you does this feel right for you and the fact that you took that off what did that mean to you how did you get the courage to do that um, because I'm sure that that was a big deal for you. Yeah, totally. Uh, I respect all the religions and uh, it's, it was my decision to your point uh, to take it off. It's just that um, I was always feeling that I'm not in charge of my own mind and body. Mm -hmm. And when the first time when I was in India, the first time that I removed my scarf and I wore just a jeans and a t-shirt, nothing crazy, walking outside the door, it was just so empowering, just walking outside and be myself and not cover my body because someone is telling me to cover mm -hmm. myself and not follow the rules. I always love to uh, analyze the rule and see if they work for me just it's okay and if not break them and even if it is back in the school although again it's not that I had it from the day first but even for from the school I never wanted to be just a random girl mm -hmm. that the people are always telling her what to do and she's doing it so it was really an amazing feeling of walking outside and although I also still had the guilt because back then still I was okay. uh, very religious mm -hmm. and just all this fear of that, now will God love me? Will I be punished? Will I be going to hell because of that? Which over time, by reading more about it, I just accepted that the God should love me regardless of if I cover you everybody. You more of... About the religion and trying okay. to understand that it's not all about cover. So okay. I try to do just kind of reach the have a balance of like live your life and still mm. um, be a religious person in th that period of time. That's so wonderful to hear. You know, my religious experience, you know, I was raised a Baptist and Baptists can be very conservative, especially, you know, even in Boston, they can be somewhat conservative about the LGBTQ community. Mm. And I just remember being in some foster homes where you know, I would kind of reveal that I was, you know, queer and, you know, foster parents kind of being like, no, this is not acceptable. And I'll never forget there was this one I told the woman that, you know, I felt I was, you know, more feminine presenting. And she immediately grabbed the, their Bible in the kitchen, sat me down at the kitchen table 
And this must have been like a, a like a special anti-LGBT version because it had all of the scriptures that referred to homosexuality or trans folks in bold red print. Oh, wow. So we went through Genesis. So oh, wow. We talked about Adam and Eve. We went through Leviticus. We went mm-hmm. through Corinthians. And I, it totally pushed me away from religion. It pushed me away from spirituality. And I had to do what you're describing, my own mm-hmm. internal work, to get back to my own spiritual core and, and have my own understanding without all of the pretense, without of, all of the judgment. Uh, what really helped me to be more connected to myself was meditation. I know we, everyone mm-hmm. talk about it, everyone is encouraging us to do it, but when I moved to US, although I, I live in different countries and I experienced life, I was finally uh, living life in my own terms, but there were so many things, there was still something inside me which was not yet healed. And when I started meditating, when I came to USA, I got introduced to Zen meditation and I started meditating. I just finally found the inner voice of me mm-hmm. that it wasn't anymore about God or religion mm-hmm. or energy or just like being straight or gay and that's when I came out as queer woman mm-hmm. and I clearly remember the day I came out to my sister we were literally standing in a bakery and uh, she was like you this friend of yours you guys are hanging out a lot and mm-hmm. what is it happening you're continuously on the phone um, and I look at her eyes and it's just again being so confident I told her but if she's just not she's not just a friend she's mm-hmm. more than a friend and I'm dating her and she's so you're bisexual that's a bit worse and I love my sister to that she's educated she's very like a very open-minded person but sometimes people don't really understand it mm-hmm. and then when I explain to her that what what do you mean I this is my decision if I want to be with a woman or with a man and now they're supportive, uh, they're like, they love my girlfriend and they're very supportive. But it's just that through that meditation, I got what I didn't have, self-love. Mm. Through all my journey, I was always, although I wanted to break the rules and taboos, but I wasn't doing many of those just to be myself. And finally, I got that connection with myself through meditation. God, how important is that then to kind of finally come out with confidence and tell people this is who I am like does self-love have to come first before you come out do you think um for me I have the policy of fake it till you make it okay you know <laughs> uh, for me I knew that I um respected myself enough to not revert to anything that made me feel like I didn't want to be alive mm. And that's how it felt to um, have to live as a boy, as you know, as a young boy. Um, and so I knew that I had to be authentic. I had to tell people what my truth was and and just do me. And you know, at first it's it's tricky because you know you're still navigating through what does it mean for you to be a girl. That's what I was mm-hmm. experiencing. And so you go to like these traditional gender stereotypes. And for me, it was like Mariah Carey's six inch heel and Mandy Moore had these really high sketcher pumps. And I thought that a a 16 year old girl like me or a 17 year old girl like me was supposed to wear those things. Mm. And you know, it's like going through a second adolescence, but we all go through adolescence at some point um, where we're trying to figure out um, how we got to the fashion and style that we incorporate in, you know, to our lives mm-hmm. today. 
Absolutely. So. And to your point, uh, I had to go through that journey too. Mm. Uh, in Italy, I really, I, when I was living in Rome, I really wanted to be the same as European woman, look really cool, dresses and high heels and makeup, um, which was very good. This was part of my journey. But until one day, I like after meditation, I shaved my head. Mm. And that was, the. I think I've never seen myself as pretty as I was when I literally, I shaved with zero all my head. It's just because finally it was just me standing there and looking at myself. And it wasn't that people are telling me I'm pretty because of my hair. Mm -hmm. And that is why I'm talking about the connection that I love, that I went through that journey of trying mm -hmm. to look exactly like society wanted me to look, look pretty hard with high heels and dresses. And finally wearing this, uh, the flat shoes and the jeans that I want and the shirt that I want, and I still look very pretty because mm -hmm. internally I am happy with who I am. It definitely seems like there is this evolution where it's like you're exploring, you're not quite sure. It's kind of like trying on clothes, right? You're, you're like, does this suit me? I'm not quite sure. So like, is there a point where you guys, where you feel like I'm finally me or does it seem like an ever evolving um, thing? Because even for me, I'm always evolving, right? Mm -hmm. My personality is evolving. You look at a photo of me 10 years ago, my hair was in a bun, I didn't have the <laughs> side thing, right? And discovering like new hairstyles, empowering myself. So it's always an evolution mm -hmm. for me. Do you guys feel that's the same for you guys? Um, for me, uh, it is an evolution. You know, um, in the documentary I produced um, with MTV, uh, I mentioned that the social transition, the idea of transitioning period uh, mm -hmm. for a trans or non-binary person, um, that there is, it's not a before and after. People right. often assume that it's like, oh, well, what was your name before? Right, or right. can I see some pictures of you before? So as far as my gender identity is concerned, um, it's not about a before and an after, it's mm -hmm. a through. Mm -hmm. And so I am, my transition will be ever evolving. It will always be in existence. Now with sexuality, that being a, a different concept, my, you know, who my attractions are, it started out, you know, me really always having an affinity for boys and being attracted to boys. And since I wasn't accepted for being effeminate, I automatically assumed that the word that would connect to how I described that it would, attraction would be gay. Mm. Since I couldn't be, I, I wasn't mm. a girl according to society and I was a boy, but this attraction would be described as me just being a gay boy who liked other boys. And then when I transitioned, you know, or as I was transitioning, um, I, you know, I never really, even in relationships, I never really felt like um, I was gay. It was never a word mm. I ever connected to me or my identity. It just seemed to be fitting to describe my experience. And then around, you know, the time I transitioned, you know, I started identifying as straight because, you know, in my authentic core was a woman um, and I am a woman attracted mm. to men. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, most assume the general mm. term is straight. Um, but then I, I realized that my attractions weren't just to cisgender men or men um, who identify internally with the sex they were assigned at birth, um, that I also was attracted to trans men. And then it became a question of, well, does this mean that I'm bisexual? But wait a second, um, mm. bisexual, um, this would mean having an attraction to more than one gender, but I'm still attracted to men. How would I describe this experience? The greatest thing that has helped me on my journey is being a trainer. 
um, because I get to research new theories, new terminology, and I have finally found, um, you know, terminology that connects with my experience as a, as a woman of transgender experience. And for me, it's androsexual. Okay. So folks who are androsexual have a natural attraction to things that are masculine. Mm -hmm. So it could be a, a dick. It could be, um, you know, a flat chest. It could be all of these things that are typically associated with masculinity. But it also could be a trans man that I have an attraction to. You know, then, you know, there are all other terms as well, like um, gynosexual. And this would be for someone who has an attraction to feminine things or mm. feminine people or women. And then there's ambisexual, which wow. kind of describes that you can have an attraction to any or all of those mm. traits. And so this eliminates the whole gay, bi, straight thing. How much this, does that make a difference? Mm. How much, like, and, and why do you think that makes a difference? I think it's more inclusive mm. because, you know, the terms um, gay, straight, and even bisexual, which is now more by the bi community is considering more of an umbrella term nowadays as opposed to this binary standard of attraction. Right. It's removing this conversation around attraction to genitals, more about I'm attracted to a hairy chest or I'm attracted to someone who has really nice facial hair. Mm. Um, I'm attracted to, you know, musculature and um, things that are typically associated with more masculine bodies. Mm -hmm. It eliminates this whole, well, does that make you? Does that make you? By mentioning this, that this androsexuality, this, you know, affinity for masculine things, you don't need to know much more than I like men. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we we all want to belong somewhere. It's like, I hate labels and know that it's kind of necessary uh -huh. all at the same time, mm -hmm. right? It's like mm -hmm. put, putting a label on you means that you're being confined. Mm -hmm. People put labels on each other all the time, but then not having a label, like to your point, what you just said, is that you felt like, well, what am I? Mm -hmm. So you almost, you want to put a label to mm -hmm. it, but at the same time, you don't want to um, trap people. Mm -hmm. um, well, one of the reasons I think we put label on ourselves is just because society doesn't understand it. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. If I come and say that I'm queer, they're like, what does that mean? Mm. And in my, my own personal life, I, make, my, I made this decision that I want to be with women. I've been with men. I've been in love with men. It's not talking about attraction. It's, I've been, I can be attracted to a man. Mm -hmm. I can be attracted to a woman. It is my decision because the way that I get connected with a woman, the way that I feel when I am a widow woman, that is the reason I identify as queer or gay mm -hmm. but it's, it's there's no label for that it's just that if i decide tomorrow to date a man i can totally do it yes. but do i want to no yeah. my preference is to be with women but the problem is with society we need to use that label something that they understand and another thing as a lesbian i get normally a lesbian label is that who are you in the relationship are you the tomboy are you the boy are you mm -hmm. the girl mm -hmm. and gender it's roles. just like the gender mm -hmm. roles it doesn't exist it's i am who i am sometimes yes I want to take the heavy lifting. Sometimes I want to be as feminine as we want to call it to just lay down and my girlfriend to bring breakfast to, to bed. So it's just, we don't really define, when we, we met each other, we didn't talk about what role are you taking in our relationship? <laughs> <laughs> like, What's interesting is that as a heterosexual, in a you know heterosexual relationship, no one ever asks me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, sometimes I'm like, no, he's not always him that's making the final mm -hmm. decision, just because he's the man. So it's interesting that I almost get a little offended that people just make an assumption, mm. and then on the reverse side of it for you, it's kind of like people want to know. Well, hang on a minute, who's this? And it's like, why does why does it have to be? Uh, what I always uh, t tell to my friends or people who are in my community that you need to 
go out, come out, talk about it. We need to come and explain to people that, yes, I'm genderqueer, I want to be with a woman, and no, I'm not man or woman. I am who I am. Mm. I might dress up, I might decide to wear a heel and dress tomorrow, and maybe in two hours I decide to change and put a pants and a t- like a hat. So it's just like discussing that and sharing with the people so they understand that it is possible to be no, to have no gender. Gender is, you know, we talk about sexuality being on a spectrum as gender is a spectrum as well. You know, you know, does every woman wear makeup? And the answer is no. no. You know, does every man, you know, shave? No, the answer is no. Are these, these very kind of binary expectations? Mm-hmm. It's not really, I have seen so many heterosexual relationships that women are way more manly in terms, like in times, like my sister sometimes does the work that you would expect her boyfriend does. Mm -hmm. But it's just even for the heterosexual relationship, it's not that woman, you always have to sit and look pretty and the man should Mm -hmm. do all the hard work. That's not the case. Mm -hmm. You know, I was going to say, it was, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of the the term heterocentrism, this general perception from society, you know, that is imposed on the individual that um, that you would automatically be heterosexual Mm -hmm. and that you should do very heterosexual things. You know, that actually works both ways. It both confines, but it also limits heterosexual people, too, because it is based on perceptions of gender Mm -hmm. about what the expectations are Mm -hmm. for you and your relationship with your husband. You know, all of those are just more gender policing. And, yeah. and really, you think about it, it's really more male-dominated dominated gender policing. It's really wrapped in misogyny. Mm-hmm. It's, it's wrapped in that. And that's the thing. So let's talk about that because it, it kind of seems like no matter what you decide, the lifestyle that you're living or the gender that you, cho- you know, that you choose or the sexuality you lean towards, everyone has issues of the expectations, mm-hmm. right? Even taking me and my relationship with Tom, the expectation was that I was gonna be the stay-at-home wife. I grew up in a very traditional Greek family. Mm-hmm. So it was gonna be, I was gonna be the stay-at-home wife while the husband goes out and I was gonna look after the kids. And over time, I evolved. And so I didn't wanna be a stay-at-home wife mm-hmm. anymore. I didn't want children anymore. And so having to talk about that, and even me, it was so difficult for me to say that outwardly to my family, because everybody was like, well, what do you mean? Like to them, to the Greek um, communities, like that is what you're born for. Mm -hmm. As a woman, you are born to uh, procreate, period. And so then for me to break out of that was like, I felt like I had to be brave and I had to take ownership. Mm -hmm. So if that is the case, and we are all ultimately struggling and wanting the best um, for ourselves, why do people still keep judging each other? And how do we stop that? I actually talk about this in training Ooh. about um, judgment. Um, often judgment is based on fear. Mm-hmm. We fear what we don't know. We don't know what can harm us. We assume that things we, that are foreign to us are harmful. That's one. And then also, um, we've seen this in, in the history of human civilization, that someone always wants to subjugate and oppress someone else. And the oppressed often will, who have no power or very little power, they will monopolize any power that they have, even if it's at the expense of another marginalized group. Um, So that happens so often in the queer community. You know, I actually describe the queer community as a caste, um, like a caste system itself. And, you know, uh, gay, white, cisgender men are at the very top. 
and black trans women are at the very bottom. And I don't think, you know, given the resources the queer community has, um, that we're doing enough to make sure there's not this division. There seems to be a constant division between sexual minority folks and gender minority folks like myself, um, where people just kind of say, Let, you know, the LGB is great, but the T part, uh, it's, it's, you know, it doesn't make sense. It's all in your head. Um, and a lot Even of the, that community says, mm -hmm. most of explain the, that to me. Most, uh, most of the transphobia that I've actually experienced has not necessarily come from, you know, cisgender heterosexual folks. It actually comes from gay men. Wow. Um, a lot of it and a lot of um, lesbian women who, or queer women who are really radical, so t TERFs, trans-exclusionary <laughs> radical feminists. You take a look at the, the Michigan Women's Music Festival in Washington and their women-born women policy to literally stop people at the door based on gender cues and to say, you can't come in here unless you were assigned female at birth. Wow. This, you know, to describe those experiences. I've gone to conferences and engaged in dialogue with cisgender women who felt that there should be, you know, cisgender women only specific spaces and um, that there needs to be a separate space mm -hmm. for trans women. But our society and the world, we've already done separate but equal. We saw mm -hmm. how it went down in the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. We saw what it was like to use a special fountain just for you or to swim mm -hmm. in a segregated pool. Do we really want to other um, our community? And so it's great that we're having dialogue like this. Yeah, and this is the, exactly why, th thanks to you, Lisa, for bringing this and allowing people to see that. But it's good to have this sort of TV, this sort of uh, medium, so that you can share this news because people don't know what it means to be a transgender. Mm. And that's when it comes to judgment. And if we continue to see, bring it up to the TV, and I, I love last year, 2019, we had so many gay movies. Every time I was just like, <laughs> yes, finally, we're getting there. Finally, Hollywood is talking about it. Finally, Hollywood is thinking about this can be just a normal movie. Mm. And I'm, I'm hoping that this is going to be more in Hollywood. And do you think that that allows people to see transgender people as basically normal people? I think yes and no. Okay. Yes, because we look, we look at 10, 15 years ago and the typical, stereotypical trans folks on television were always seen as, you know, satire, as comedy, mm -hmm. or as for shock value. You look at Jerry Springer and Maury Povich, you know, this big revelation about something and then violence ensuing. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, visibility absolutely matters. It, it does make a difference, but visibility is not the same thing as equality. Um, you now have an awareness that I exist I think that most folks have always had an understanding that trans folks have existed, but they've never been taken as seriously as they are now. Mm. Um, our lives are being validated more and more in, in different states and policies. There's so much more work to be done. I'm doing it now, totally. you know, going around the country, but the work still needs to be done. And yeah. so, you know, don't just watch the, the content. Don't yeah. just watch the shows. How many trans friends do you have? How many trans friends do you, you know, have in your circle? How many black trans women do you have in your circle? If you want to know how to be there for the community, how to really be mm -hmm. an ally, then you've got to know some folks. It helps you to have more empathy in the experience. And you're literally, it is in itself, uh, you know, can be life-saving for many of us. You know, the life expectancy of a black trans woman 
in America is 35. What? Mm -hmm. It's 35. And I'm 36. Wow. You know? So this idea that these statistics are out there and wanting to beat those statistics and seeing how much how much you know the queer community historically has gathered in times of trouble in times of turmoil and to see how exactly how the queer you know movement responded to marriage equality all of the force and the energy that was put into you know canvassing and going door to door and investing all these this time and legal expertise and we don't see that mirrored for transgender people or non-binary people wow you know, the work I do here, even in Los Angeles, working with so many, you know, black trans women who are experiencing homelessness. I was one of them. And I don't see the same energy and enthusiasm. Um, and I think that's not just the community, but I think it's the macro. Mm-hmm. I think it's the general message we're getting from our government as we see more and more of, you know, trans folks' rights being taken away. and. Um, and we're really being made to, to seem like we're mentally ill and that there's something essentially wrong with us. But transgender people, non-binary people have, have existed since the beginning of human civilization. So, you know, I teach adults, you know, about some of the risk factors because sometimes it helps to give some context, you know. So when you had mentioned that 41% of trans folks had actually attempted suicide, not thought about it, but attempted suicide, you know, those, um, those statistics help with, you know, some of more, the more, you know, practical folks who are in the field uh, of child welfare, social welfare. But it's also about empathy. And I talk about this in training, too, about tolerance versus acceptance. You know, what you tolerate, it's kind of who you don't discriminate against. Whereas acceptance is who you include and naming those names and being intentional. And that's what's really, if you want to be an ally to trans folks, you really have to be intentional about it. Mm. It can't just be talking the talk. We, we listen to people talk and we still die. They need to go out more and come mm. out more and talk about it more out loud. Because in, at least in Middle East, there are so many uh, queer women, queer men that they cannot still talk to their family, that they need to just step out and find a way to communicate it. But I think it's on our community to just stand and talk about it. And what I do normally, like it's very big taboo to take girlfriend to a Persian community. I take my girlfriend to a restaurant, to a party, and I, when I kiss her, when I hold her hand, the entire party is staring at me. Mm-hmm. That who are you? They look at us as if we are an alien, if we're gonna go to hell right away. They don't understand us. It's just that that's why I feel like visibility is gonna help to just having us to be there and talking about it. It's just. I think you're, I think you're right. I think for gender minorities, um, visibility is important, but safety is also paramount. And so when it comes to safety, you know, um, as I talk about in in training, you know, we don't, you know, with trans folks, it's not so much about coming out. It's about disclosure Mm -hmm. because, you know, when you come out as a trans person, it incurs risk. And sometimes, you know, me having come out to folks, um, for instance, being walking down the street and a guy walking up to me and asking me for a date or asking for my number and me disclosing mm-hmm. to them that I am trans and it turning violent or them threatening violence wow. or saying some really, you know, throw, throwing epithets at me. 
Um, so safety is really important. Totally. It is absolutely vital for folks to come out because we cannot be what we cannot see. Mm. Um, and, but just, you know, with trans folks, there are, there are, little, there are some more, there's right. more complexity. Mm -hmm. There are more layers, but you're absolutely right. And like everyone has baggage, right? So it's like even let's take my mom. She came out in her 60s, mm -hmm. you know, so she was brought up in a convent with nuns. So that obviously set a stage of the way that she would think. And so then finally coming out in her 60s as a divorced woman with three children, like she... Um, it was the judgment that she feared the mm -hmm. most of how other people were going to see her. And even when she disclosed it to me, my brother and my sister, when she finally told us, she was petrified, like she was shaking. Yeah. And I was like, mom, like I was so happy for her. And I was like, mom, what, are you okay? And she's like, I didn't want you to disown me. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that like, and that's the thing, I, I think you're totally right. I wish people do come out and back to what you were saying. It's just, it's the other side of it of people have to overcome their own baggage as well. And then how do they do that? And I really hope it is by having these types of discussions mm -hmm. where people can just see um, the truth of what it is like to be a transgender woman um, in case someone doesn't know, mm -hmm. right? Like you said, it's like people don't put themselves in this space, these spaces to be around people that are diverse so they can then accept them. So the hope is, is that doing this show, getting you guys like on camera to speak so openly has been so incredible, by the way. Um, I'm truly honored to have you guys here. And then also for me as well, it's just to try and understand more. Mm. And so I think one of you said it earlier, was like, you get asked a lot of questions, right? Like, well, do you like, do you do this? And is it like this? And I don't know where other people come from, but for me, it is to try and understand so that I can feel like I can relate to you mm. in a way that, okay, so you have a struggle. Oh, well, hey, I have a struggle too, you know? But without asking those questions, I feel like I am... Um, I don't understand the life that you've come from. So then mm. I can't be empathetic towards what you're going through. So I just hope that people are able to ask the questions in a very respectful manner to try to... That's the key, mm. is how you ask. Okay. Because there's, what do you intend? And it's, right. and it's, and it's the impact. <laughs> totally. And you sense receive. the intention in the way they ask yes. the question. Because, you know, I was in a training once and a couple of girls actually came up to me and said, so um, do you have a vagina? Do you, what do you have? Um, and so I waited. I said, you know what? I'm going to answer that when we come back from our break. And I said, you know, just by show of hands in uh, the group, you know, who is comfortable talking about their private parts? Um, because if the answer is nobody, then why would you ask? Yeah. So it's all about how you ask. Mm. So, if, you know, in, in thinking about the questions you ask, like really ask yourself, why do I want to know mm. this? Um, is it general curiosity? Do I want to know the mechanics or how mm. the parts work? Um, you know, even when talking about sexuality and attractions, asking for descriptors around that. It's all in how you ask. And at the end of the day, some stuff is just none of your business. Okay. Like you, know? you said, you would never go up to a random person and ask them about their privates ever. <laughs> mm -hmm. And something I get often is that when men ask me, so you, you date women? And I'm like, yes. And they were like, well, how did it happen? Why? And I'm like, well, I 
this is my preference. And the, this is the comment I get. You didn't write, find the right man, or in a way nice. they're saying right penis. And I'm like, not really. I, I think I've tried too many to just know <laughs> that I, I'm not into it anymore. But this, this happened often. Mm. It's just when the men are speaking with me, they always consider that you didn't find the right person. Mm. If you slip with me, I can help you to change your mentality, which is, this is not genuine. Like you're not coming and asking me, why do I choose to be with a woman? You are trying to flirt with me mm. and trying yeah. to pr prove me that I'm wrong. And I'm not interested in a woman because I'm just doing this only because I didn't find the right person. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Wow, guys, I could keep going forever <laughs> about this conference. Again, thank you so sure. much for coming on the show. Um, before we leave, I want to ask, where can people find you guys? And then what is your superpower? Um, so uh, folks can find me on Instagram uh, at n.i.a.clark. Um, I'm also on Facebook, so Nia Clark on Facebook. <laughs> so come find me. My superpower is my armor, you know. My armor is love. I, uh, I have a lot of love for young people. Um, young people imbue me with this sense of hope um, that things are not just going to get better, but are getting better. Um, and being around them, I want to be around the change that they want to see in the world. Mm. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Love it. Um, I'm in Instagram, Mahdis, um, M-A-H-D-I-S, Rezaei, at seven. You can find me on Facebook or LinkedIn too. My superpower is my energy. Um, I always feel like I have, my energy is overflowing inside me, but everywhere I go, I feel like I continuously I'm having that connection between the energies. My energies are getting transferred between the people. Mm -hmm. And people often ask me, just where do, you, where do you bring it from? Where is it coming from? I'm like, I don't know. It's just inside me. It's always overflowing. That's Thank amazing. You. Well, guys, I was going to think of how do I end this episode? And really the only way I can end it is with an incredible quote that actually Madis also said. Think of yourself as a puzzle. There are thousands of little pieces which make up who you are. Your sexuality, gender, identity, and gender expression. Are, these are just three parts of that puzzle. But without them, your picture would be incomplete. Remember, realizing your LGBTQ doesn't change who you are. It just fills in some of the blanks. Until next time, guys, go be the hero of your own life.